Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by Jason Lemkin, one of the most proficient founders and investors in SaaS today. Jason successfully sold a SaaS startup to Adobe, manages approximately a $90 million fund focused on SaaS businesses, and of course puts on the annual SASTER conference, which hosts over 10,000 founders, investors, and executives annually in San Francisco. So Jason, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Jason, I'm excited to talk to you today and, and dive into a bunch of topics related to startups and, and venture, but you know, really focusing the bulk of the conversation on your core proficiency in SaaS. So before we dive in, you know, as background, you went to Harvard undergrad and, and Berkeley Law. Talk a little bit more about what led you long from a long time ago. Yeah. Talk a bit more about not that long ago. <laughs> Talk a bit more about what led you from law school to, to tech and, you know, ultimately as a, a successful founder and um, investor. Well, I mean, the world is just, I mean, it is a long time ago, at least in internet time, because so much has changed. I, I went to law school, you know, in sort of the, the time when sort of software died right before Web 1.0. And, you know, even though I started a small software company, you know, even when I was a teenager, like, seems like everybody does these days. Um, you know, by the time I got to my early 20s, uh, I actually had no idea what to do in technology. Um, but I was fortunate. I, by going to Berkeley in the, in the mid-90s for law school, I was lucky enough that I was in California when the Internet was sort of rising. And I, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know about law school. I didn't know how to get back into technology. But I joined a very quirky law firm called Venture Law Group at that time that worked on, it was very innovative, it worked on Sand Hill Road, right, with the VCs, and it spun out of Wilson Sonsini, and it had this crazy idea of working with startups. Uh, and obviously, fast forward a few years, that's fairly mainstream for Silicon Valley law firms. But back then, it was a, this nutty thing of a bunch of very seasoned lawyers, partners from these firms that just wanted to work with startups. So I only made it about 20 years as a corporate attorney, but I got to serve on the boards of a half dozen companies the IPOs, failures, M&A, good CEOs, bad CEOs, uh, and then I just I just decided that I had to get back into into, into startups and internet where my passion was, and joined one of my clients that quickly got bought and IPO'd and went through a lot of drama, and then became a founder twice, had a few exits. I call myself a magna cum minus exit. You got about 150 million in exits personally. Uh, and then started sharing my experiences uh, on the B2B side in this blog about five years ago. And fast forward today, we get about 3 million views. We have 10,000 folks coming to our conference. For some reason, I accidentally got into venture investing and have done okay at it. Uh, and I'm doing a few too many things to try to contribute to the next generation of founders. No, that's awesome. And so you, you, know, you founded two companies, like you mentioned, Nanogram. Uh, you sold actually just after 13 months. And then... Uh, Echo Sign, and, and you know that that became a great success by selling to Adobe. So let's yeah. you know let's take a minute and talk about SaaS, right? And and let's start at the back, at, at the foundation of what you know SaaS is. SaaS is now mainstream phenomena. Uh, we've seen huge. SaaS su- is just software today. SaaS it, doesn't even exist. SaaS is now a term that Wall Street uses to explain the power of recurring revenue as a business model, which is you know why Adobe, Intuit, Microsoft why their business models have blown up the last 36 months, even though they're the same old boring products they used to be. 
Yeah, no, and I think that's exactly right, right? I, I think part of how it's such mainstream phenomena now is there is a term to actually tag it as opposed to what it was before, right? So, you know, we've seen huge successes in the space like Salesforce, Box, you know, one of the recent darlings of the public markets at Lassian. Um, and exactly to your point, right, Wall St- uh, a lot of PE and growth dollars are starting to chase it more and more. Uh, Wall Street is getting more accustomed to it. So, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, just at a foundational principles level, what a SaaS business or what, a, you know, what Wall Street, I guess, understands as a SaaS business to be. And then more interestingly, you know, talk a little bit about the business model shift, you know, mindset shift in the enterprise, trends in technology like the cloud, et cetera, that's enabled some of these businesses to take off at just, you know, dramatic global scale. Well, I think, it, it, you know, a term obviously morphs over time, but just cloud doesn't really mean what it meant even a few years ago. So does SaaS or software as a service. So, you know, a few years ago, SaaS was a term that, that differentiated products that uh, software products that were done in a browser uh, versus those that were downloaded. Uh, that was the technology difference. And typically, the business model difference was it was paid on a on a recurring revenue basis. It was paid monthly, uh, and we learned that if your customers are happy and they pay monthly over years, they'll end up paying much more than they pay one time. So when Adobe switched from a so-called perpetual license for for things like Photoshop and Creative Suite, uh, you know, the master collection at Adobe was like $1,000, which was a lot for an individual designer to pay. Now they'll pay $40 a month uh, for the web version of that. But imagine they're a customer for 10 years. That's that's worth five times as much as that one-off purchase. So uh, there's a delivery mechanism and a purchasing mechanism and that's kind of what we've all figured out the last five years. Now it's all changed again. Uh, mobile changed it. It's not about a browser anymore. And that changed a little bit because it's different, more difficult to monetize sometimes in mobile. And then the whole API economy and developer economy changed. And Twilio, Atlassian that you mentioned, uh, and products that either sell to developers or more importantly are building blocks of other products like MongoDB that just IPO. They'll have even different models. So this, this singular model of a browser-based product where someone pays a fixed fee per month, that's also starting to break down as as this the entire cloud continues to grow and the way we interconnect applications continues to change. I think one of the interesting things in this space is, you know, even as you start to see some of these shifts like Mongo, you mentioned, et cetera, it still takes a really long time in SaaS to build a real winner. You know, your your adage is I think seven years to scale, ten years to go public and and twenty years to have generational impact. What is it about B2B you know, SaaS, um, you know, as that term of art has, you know, started to evolve, et cetera. But what is it about these types of companies that just takes so long to build and, and win the market? Yeah, there's a little, there's a little exercise I do once a year. It may help folks in this podcast. Um, I don't do much at Stanford out here, but once a year, uh, my old boss brings me into his entrepreneur class that he teaches to, is to the Stanford Business School students. And he talks about this and that. And he asked me for the one bit of advice I give to the, to the business school students. Uh, and I always give the same advice. It's the third year, and it's just one line. And I tell them, it'll take, if you're going to do B2B, if you're going to do a product that people are going to buy, it's going to take you 12, 24 months to get anywhere. So if you're sitting here in this beautiful campus in Palo Alto, right, in one of the, you know, this amazing, where it's sunny every day, it's not like back in Boston, and the world seems bucolic and perfect. If you want to do B2B, you have to budget at least 24 months. And these Stanford Business School kids, their jaws always drop. 
or something, you can, and you have free users, if you're extremely lucky, you can create a viral loop fast enough that you can get traction in a year. But it never works that way in D2D. If, here's the simple schedule. You and your co-founder decide to build a product. It takes you nine months to ship that product and make it good enough for business. It can't just be a little tweeter, a little WhatsApp. It has to be a sellable, viable product. It takes you, if you're lucky, it'll take you nine months to get that to work. Then it will be wrong because you did not do enough diligence. So if you're lucky, three months later, you iterate it, and 12 months out, you have a sellable product. And let's assume someone actually buys it. Well, maybe it takes you another three months just to get 10 customers. And let's say that your product's $20 a month. So you're 15 months in, you're making $200 a month. That, that's what we used to call beer money when we were when we were there. So that's 15 months in. So if you're lucky, at 24 months, maybe you get up to 100000 a month in revenue, or maybe 50, 40, 20, 30, enough to pay your little team and yourself nothing. It will take 24 months. And if you only budget to folks that want to be entrepreneurs here from the Harvard or other communities, if you only budget 12 months to see if it's going to work, you have almost a hundred percent chance of failing. And how do you how do you actually continue to maintain? You know, let's say you do get off the ground, right? How do you contain to maintain continue to maintain that long term vision as you grow the company? Because it's it's tough, right? You face obstacles. You, know, you, should just quit. you should quit. If you don't know the answer to that question, you should quit. This is too hard. Jeff Bezos doesn't have to answer that question, right? Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have. Mark Benioff doesn't have to answer that question. If you're not sure you can maintain the, the commitment and you're smart enough to be going to Harvard, you know what you should do? Go work at a top-tier tech company or PE firm and make a lot of money. Do not do a startup. It, it's too hard. Seriously, quit. Tech crunch in the world today is they've done a great job of convincing everybody that the default choice should be the startup. Absolutely. And I love YC. I love everything about YC. I, it's the greatest business model on planet Earth. <laughs> but not everyone should start it. I think people should start down. Don't do it. It's This stuff is so hard. It rewires your mind. It takes every ounce that you have. It'll wreck your life. It'll be challenged in your family. It will ruin your friendships. If you're smart enough to be honest, just go work for Vista Private Equity suck it up for five years, and if you crush it, you'll make seven figures a year, that's much easier than starting something. No, I think that I, I think that's spot on from the perspective of I also share that sentiment. I think TechCrunch, the press, um, buzzwords, and, and articles and stories make entrepreneurship feel way too glorified, and I think there's a lot of interesting kind of ancillary so things. It's easy to graduate from whatever, yeah. Harvard Law School, Harvard, anything. Just sit at WeWork for nine months with your iMac and yeah. just screw around and pretend you're doing something. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't have your kombucha and your cappuccino and pretend you're doing something, but that's not a commitment. No, you're right, right? And it's it's actually really tough to build enduring winners and, and companies in this space. I guess I was orienting the question a little it's bit differently. anything that people will buy. Forget about building a winner. Here's the thing. Let me give you different advice. In SaaS, it's, you have to break it up. You have to atomize it. Mm-hmm. Don't worry if you want to do a B2B product about building something as big as Salesforce. Don't worry about that, unless you're, you're already worried about it, in which case, ignore my advice anyway. But for most of it, break it up. How am I going to get 10 paying customers to start? And when I get 10, how the heck am I going to get 100 before I go into business? And then if I get to 100, how the heck am I going to get 1,000 when I don't have enough help, when I don't have any VPs, I don't have a team? Break it up. Break it up into getting 10 million, 20 million, 60 million, 100 million, because once you get a little part of the journey, this is the beauty to recurring revenue, you'll know how to get a little bit further along. You don't have to answer all the questions, but you have to know at least how to get 
Got it. Yeah, that's actually, I was tactically orienting it around that piece, which is less so about, you know, the uh, long-term vision from the perspective of, you know, the challenge of working in it, in it, et cetera. We're on the same page. More so from, I think SaaS is unique, especially because, you know, unlike other businesses, right, you're constantly running out of cash. Like the recurring revenue is great, right? But the upfront customer acquisition cost isn't. So it's a little bit different from the perspective of how you're constantly sort of chasing the business, even when you're doing, in fact, when you're doing really well, it's actually the hardest problem, right? Because your your growth and your velocity takes a ton of capital up front. Um, uh, that's, that's, that's DC speak. Same one. Atlassian. Atlassian never, look at Qualtrics. These are two different companies that never needed a dollar of primary capital. Yeah, that's fair. But I would also say, wouldn't you think that those are... Products that you, if you, there's, you, can, you can build a huge SaaS company with no money. You want to know how you do it? You hustle. You don't hire 50 salespeople to start. You do it yourself. Then you, you build a product customers love. Eventually, if they love it, word of mouth starts. All mm-hmm. the best software companies since the dawn of time, you know what Intuit and Adobe and Microsoft were built on? Word of mouth. Word of mouth, that's the lead source. Word of mouth is takes a huge amount of time and effort, but the ultimate cost is quite low. Uh, the Atlassian is uh, it's an old company. Some of the products uh, have been around a long time, but people love Atlassian, and that's why it's grown the way it has. You do not need all this money. All the money does, if you're doing it right, is help you grow faster. If you're doing it wrong, it can, support, it can hold up a very leaky bucket, uh, but don't build a leaky bucket. So let's let's switch gears a little bit, right? If you, if you read these internet articles and they say that it's okay to have a twenty-four month payback on your customer, no, that's cost, crazy. That's that's, ridiculous. Yeah, there that's many companies that I know where it's true, but you do not. This is a choice in life. You do not have to build a company where the customers only sort of like it, or where no one understands your competitive benefit. If you have fifty competitors in a space and no one can tell the difference between them, yeah, that's your a problem. Cost is going to be very high. Of course. Look at Craigslist, right? I mean, who knows how much. Uh, Craig makes, but the understanding is he makes hundreds of millions of dollars off Craigslist. There's no competition. <laughs> <laughs> there are more Craigslist, there are more survey monkeys that got to 50 million with one guy running it. There are more of those stories out there yeah. than you might think. It can be done. That's like, fair. Every company can be built different ways. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe they just don't get the relative press coverage and they should. Maybe if you're just missing cash, you want to keep your head down. Yeah, that's probably true too. Yeah, that's fair. Let's let's switch gears a little bit, right? I think one of um, you know one of the interesting things in in enterprise SaaS is is kind of the dynamic of competition. The subject generally, we we've been talking about it a little bit, but how founders treat it, right? You have all sorts of different founders. On on one side, it's over-indexing on fear. You know, what if Adobe comes out with this product to compete tomorrow? And then these there's the opposite and the other side, which is you know over-indexing on overconfidence. Big companies move slow. They don't have great engineering talent. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think both. Of, I think those framings are, are wrong, um, and I think big companies not getting into a space of startups is less about capability and often more about you know structural challenge of a of a big company. I, I think you you know you've talked a lot about this. You saw this you know I think as a VP at Adobe. Talk more about that dynamic and, and structural challenge just of you know large companies coming out with a new product, and and then more importantly, I think that's not as much the challenge, but the challenge of sustaining it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely an issue topic, but it's an interesting one. You know, as, as a founder, there's there are a few things more stressful than, you know, firing up your tech crunch and reading that Google or Amazon or Salesforce, maybe it's often Salesforce or others, have entered your space, right? They've built a competitive product. 
market us. Uh, backwards. Almost always at backwards. I will tell you that at Adobe, where I worked at, even though it was a very mature company compared to a Google uh, or, or even Salesforce, we had 50 extra engineers that were better than your 50 engineers. 50 extra engineers with nothing, literally nothing to do. Yes, were they 20 years old? No, they've been there a while, but they built some of the most fundamental, complex pieces of software that have ever been built. And the world has changed, and Adobe doesn't fire anybody, nor does Google or anybody. They really don't fire anyone who's good. And so there's always extra engineers. And they are better than anyone you will hire in terms of uh, IQ, temperament. Um, and, and if it's a competitive product, the beauty is they don't have to come up with the roadmap. Inventing something's hard. But if I just need to clone your product and your product is already launched, I, I just get a product manager, build a spec. And these big companies can launch a clone of your product in 90 to 180 days if they want. And it will be just as good as yours. And actually, in some ways, it will be better because they'll build it on a more durable, scalable stack. And they will build it seeing some of your mistakes, and they'll skip those mistakes. So they can build any, anyone can build software, anything. That, that's a myth if you think they can't. And if they have 50 extra good engineers, you don't, right? So they can crush you in the beginning. The problem isn't that. The problem isn't that your team, your amazing team of cranky, engineers that never really put coding to production are better than Amazon and Google or not, or Salesforce. The problem is maintaining it on two levels and marketing it. But there's a similar set of issues. What people don't understand about big companies is as big as they are, they have fixed resources. So even if I have those 50 engineers, uh, what if I need 100 next year or 200? I can't get them. That's all I'm going to get until this becomes the next search. It becomes the next AWS, the next whatever. And that's why you'll see these big companies launch a lot of products that are pretty good, but they don't really go anywhere because they can't continue to put more resources. The number of resources becomes fixed because if I have a 1,000 people on my team and I have 50 extras, I can afford 50, but when you need 200 people to sell, market, and scale it, that's 20% of my team. And there's no way I'm going to do that unless it's a core product. So... What you really need to distill it all into one or two ideas. When a competitor launches, when a big company launches a product, you have to understand how many people they're putting against it. And if it's SaaS, try to learn if they're hiring, putting real sales and marketing, dedicated resources, not shared resources, not but discrete resources. And if Google's going to put 100 sales and marketing efforts into your, people in your space, you're in trouble. If Salesforce is going to do 100, you may be in trouble. But if it's a mixed team, uh, And so when you're on the other side of it, right, let's talk, we talked from the founder perspective, let's say you're, you know, that VP at Adobe, for example, um, how do you work through that challenge of innovating, you know, within that, a Fortune 500 company, right? How do you, is it, you know, setting up There's a new no business unit? Innovating. Big companies are more, are easier to innovate. Uh, it's, it's harder to sustain. Uh, there's two reasons that you have extra engineers, and here's the other beauty to every big tech company that people don't get. Every big tech company has to let be supportive when people fail. If you're in a big company and you go off and do the the Evernote competitor, the Dropbox competitor, the the Mongo competitor, the whatever, the Jive competitor, if you if you raise your hand at Google or Adobe or Salesforce and say, I'm willing to do that project, and it doesn't work and you're fired, no one will ever raise their hand. So people miss this, but the best big tech companies, the most innovative, are super tolerant of failure and 
not the company game. Uh, and that's why none of this stuff you can really predict. It's just like M&A. You don't know who's going to buy you because you don't know which individual is behind on their plan for this year. You've talked, talk about that, talk about M&A and, and Corp Dev a little bit more. You've, I know you've talked a little bit about the notion of how, you know, CEO led Corp Dev is, you know, different than SVP led Corp Dev, which is different than VP led Corp Dev all from, you know, from strategic angles, as well as just down to pure finance, right? From the perspective of VP led, you know, M&A can often be funny money, right? It's, it's balance sheet based um, and you'll, you know, you'll lose cash, but you know, on the actual balance sheet of the company, it's it's just a transfer of assets. So talk talk a little bit more about that phenomenon. You know how that changes. You know how that. Well, let me answer a different version of my meta learning to folks listening to this. My my number one advice to people, and it, it took me. I, I didn't really take it as a founder, but I give it freely now. Don't have an exit strategy. This is my number one piece of MLA. Don't have an exit strategy. Both of my startups were actually bought by. A, a logical acquirer. My first company, Anagram Devices, was a long time ago, but it was bought by the large public company in the space when we were the only innovative vendor in 20 years. Logical acquisition. But the next year, that public company exited the entire space. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it seemed logical, but if, if we'd been off 10 months, the deal never would have happened. Yeah. If you think about EchoSign, what, what you might know about it, signing documents, managing, it sounds like a perfect fit for Adobe, right? But the document division of Adobe is the smallest third stepchild of Adobe. It's not important. <laughs> and the, the SVP in charge of the deal wasn't even there by the time the deal closed. So if that deal had gotten pushed six months later, there's no way it would have happened. So you, you can't predict this stuff, and your exit strategy is wrong, and the slide is wrong, and more importantly, things change over time. Sure. They change. You know, why did, why did GE buy ServiceMax for a billion dollars? Like, I, I, you know, I knew the, company, the CEO since he, before he joined. You, you wouldn't have predicted it. People change. Why did GM buy Cruise for sort of kind of $1.2 billion for revenue? Sure. Who, who knew GM would all of a sudden wake up and say, I'm so far behind in autonomous vehicles that I got to buy something this week and I'm going to buy Cruise. But in 2019, they might buy something else. So have no exit strategy. Here's your exit strategy in SaaS and D2D. And this works particularly well today with the rise of private equity. Your exit strategy is get to 20 million, in revenue with happy customers and good things will happen. So talk a little bit more about what you, you know, you've obviously learned a significant amount about SaaS as a founder. Talk a little bit more, you know, you've been, you've kind of transitioned from the angel investing role to the professional investing role, you know, recently. What, you know, what have you learned? What's been the good and the bad? You know, what are your investment criteria fundamentally boiled down to? And talk a little bit about, you know, the relative kind of strength weakness paradigm of being a, a founder turned VC. Uh, as opposed to, you know, just kind of an institutional career VC? Well, boy, that's, that's a lot of questions. Let me try, let me try and answer a very note that maybe helps the likely listener to this. Many folks listening to this, if I have the audience right, may think that venture capital is an attractive career. Let me dispel that, that, that notion in a couple of ways. Let me talk at, at the most extreme level. I, have, I am extremely fortunate. I was able to raise basically two venture funds in less than a year. I have almost $90 million under management, uh, which is, I, I'm not even sure I deserve, uh, and I'm, there's 200 people who probably have better track records than me that aren't so fortunate. 
who's even going to ever make you a partner? And even if you're a partner, how are you really going to be a managing partner? And even if you're, who's ever going to let you run your own firm and manage your own money? So for whatever quirky reasons, I got to I got to go through all of that quickly and manage my own decently sized fund. So let's talk about the main fund. Let's call it sixty million to keep it simple. And let's say let's let's uh, let's let's look at a few of the investments I made, even from this fund. They're great investments. So let's look at the first investment. This company, Automile.com. I was the first U.S. investor. It does SaaS fleet tracking. We just raised thirty-five million from Insight last week. That's a huge step up and a great run for the first investment out of this fund, right? Uh, and let's assume let's assume though, since we're an early investor, we own ten percent. Actually, I'm lucky enough to own a little bit more, but let's keep it simple with ten. And after all these years, let's say in 2022, Automile sells for $400 million. Sure. $400 million. That's much better than I ever did as a founder, right? So we, as a fund, we own 10%, but we got diluted, so it's down to 8%. Yep. So 8% of $400 million is $30 million, right? Yep. You returned we half the fund. We only returned half the capital. <laughs> yep. Three X. Yep. Four X probably 4X. at your size. And yep. An early stage fund. Yep. How you like an eight of these? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have enough time to support so that many companies. And if I had two of those amazing exits, two of those amazing three hundred million dollar exits, I don't even make a nickel. Yep. And it takes ten years. And the further these grow, the more yeah. you get diluted let's down. Let's say it's even worse. Let's say the fund makes a little bit of money, but let's say you joined as a junior partner and you had like. One percent carry, which is like more than your two percent carry, which is actually more than you're going to get in most funds. And let's say the fund makes, we have four of these, and the fund does two x, so the fund has sixty million in profit over ten years. Yep. Right. Twenty percent of that goes to the investors. That's yep. twelve million. Yep. And you make two percent of that, so that that's two hundred forty thousand dollars over ten years. Twenty four thousand dollars a year. Yep. Do you really want to do venture? Oh, I agree. If you say, if you say, I'm willing to invest ten years and invest in some really, really good companies, and and not even know how they're going to do, and make twenty four thousand dollars in profits plus my my crummy salary, and you still want to be in this industry, go for it. I agree. I I the math, right. especially for so early stage it funds. Is not, it is not. It is. I meet so many folks who say I would love to invest. Uh, do the math. Okay. Yeah. So if that. Especially the smart, smarter, younger folks from Harvard know this. Just, just, just do the math. It's a brutal, soul-crushing career. On the other hand, if you can somehow make it work and you're passionate about it, you can make a lot of money. But it's much harder. It's much harder than it sounds, uh, and it takes way too long. So I don't know if that answers your question, but no one does the math, and I didn't do the math when I entered venture because I was a founder, uh, and uh, I still try to not do the math, even though I've made some pretty darn good investments. But it's daunting. Yeah, it is. No, and I think folks that don't do the early stage math, they're doing a disservice to themselves. And it it answers one part of the question in some sense, Uh, you know, helpful explanation, I think, for folks to get a little bit of a reality check. Because I think, again, right, to our earlier piece, what we were talking about, TechCrunch, New York Times, et cetera, are doing a fantastic ad campaign for the tech space these days and making it sound like all all is rosy. I guess I was trying to orient the question a little bit differently there, so there's there's a question set around whether you want to get into venture or not, if it's a good career, fair, right? 
I guess the questions that I'm, I'm more, a little bit more interested in is whether you were lucky or not, you're involved in it. You're talking to tons and tons of founders. Some are great founders, right? Some of the companies you're investing in. What are the kinds of things that, you know, you've learned in terms of, you know, investing in just really good teams and, and folks that are going to do really well? And I'm, I'm less interested in the monetary aspect of it, but more so just, you know, the excitement and the passion of, you know, helping build a business that's going to be really interesting. Um, and, and, you know, what's, what's kind of the bad, right? What are the, what are the ones interestingly that, you know, at the outset might've looked good based on what have you, right? Good team before product market fit, usage metrics, whatever it is, but maybe didn't turn out so great. So what, you know, now that you've kind of transitioned from the founder side to investing. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. Uh, on several levels. I'm lucky I've been able to invest. I'm lucky that good founders have asked me to invest. And another thing that I decided to do when I started investing for, for several reasons is I decided I would only do late investing. Uh, okay. This whole industry has gotten atomized and sliced up. But I won't invest unless you have at least $10,000 a month or so in revenue, $100,000 a year, $10,000. And to many, to many investors across the whole spectrum, that will sound uh, tiny. To like very early angel investors, that may sound like a lot of money. Wow, $10,000 a month in revenue. But what I learned as a, as a CEO and all of my peers learned it is that the hardest thing in SaaS is product market fit. Yep. And if you have product market fit and happy customers, I have a superpower. I can give you a VP of sales, a VP of marketing, a VP of customer success. I can give you all those VPs that ordinarily you couldn't get at this stage from my network. Uh, and I can help you accelerate and grow faster. But what I can't do is create the first customers for you. So... I cheat. I only invest late seed. I pay a slightly higher price because of it. But because of that, out of the 23 investments I've done, 22 have gotten a bigger fund to write the next check at a higher price. So 22 out of 23 so far. So I have this formula. So none of them have, and because it's late seed and because I have the formula, none of them have like exploded on me and gotten to no revenue. Uh, with one small exception, but it, it broke a rule. So yep. that's the advantage of recurring revenue in late seed uh, and investing in founders that I think are better than me. Yep. Uh, I will tell you by quirky learning of the ones that have performed the best are the founders with the most extreme integrity, the ones that always put the company first, the ones that, that worry the most about their teams, the ones that are... And, in, and you can distill it all into one interesting... Uh, one interesting and very tangible output, which is actually the ones that are most transparent, have done the best. Hmm. Interesting. Say a little bit more. The ones, share, the ones that share the bad news just as quickly as the good. Got it. Okay. The yep. ones that on October 31st, they send out the investor update. Yep. Do you have to do that on October 31st? No. Right? Do I, I mean, it's fine. But the ones that they're, they're so excited that it was a good month, right? Or they want to share the challenges they had that literally the day the month closes, they send that update out. Those ones have always performed the best for me, with maybe one exception. That transparency, transparency is efficient, transparency builds trust, right? And transparency lets you scale past 50 employees. Oh, exactly, right? It's not just upper, it's, it's a small, actually, action of giving transparency to the board, which is probably more emblematic of a management yes, style. Not to the board, to everyone, to employees, to, to the world, to your customers. You can't be 100% transparent, right? That's, of that's, course that's not. So. Right. But, but, being, but, but disclosing everything that needs to be disclosed promptly and clearly 
Are way higher, yeah, and it's a hard thing to do. It's an easy thing to talk about in theory, but it's a hard thing to do in practice. Yes, yeah. um, and, and to, to make the most suggestion to you is the founders that have disclosed the most about the tough times and the challenges have outperformed those that that shrink and hide and don't disclose when things are tough. Just quantitatively, top line, they perform better. Yeah. All right, so Jason, I want to round out our conversation. I want to go through a little round of rapid fire. So I'll just, you know, ask a string of questions and um, just want to elicit, you know, one or one or two sentence response. Um, so first question, you know, which public SaaS company today uh, do you think is the most valuable in ten years? Boy, I, I, you know, I really, I really wish I was smart enough to answer that question. <laughs> um, I'm really at ten years. I, I, if I were, if I could, in all seriousness, if I could answer that question, I wouldn't have sold my company. I would have kept being a CEO. Um, so I, it's it's hard to know, but I I think I may I think I'll bet on. Can I make two bets? Yeah, okay? yeah, for sure. I, I'm going to bet on New Relic and Atlassian for slightly different reasons. Um, New Relic uh, is in a super competitive space. Application performance management. I know they describe themselves as broader. But the CEO is such a founder's founder. He sold his first company in the exact space for $400 million to CA and said, I'm never doing that again. He's built the company the right way to endure. New Relic is where I put my money. I have no inside information. Uh, because this is, this is I, I, you know, the, the CEO that I, I barely know Lou. I've only met him a few times. But I think of all of the public SaaS companies, he's the one I look up to the most. I look up to all of them. Uh, so New Relic's my top choice. I love Twilio too, but New Relic's my top choice. Uh, and I think from an enduring perspective, I'm just so impressed at Atlassian's ability to reinvent itself over multiple decades that even at a $10 billion market cap, I think you'd be betting against Atlassian you're a fool. So if you could only start one more company uh, during the rest of your life, who would you found it with? Boy, if I could only found one more company for the rest of my life? Yeah, who would you do it with? Uh, I, it would only be with one of my VPs or co-founders that I've worked with before. Going through and meeting a new co-founder, no matter how good they are, I would never do it at this point in life. And what's the best advice you've ever gotten as a founder, and who'd you get it from? Uh, the best advice I ever got as a founder was early in days of Atlassian when I was struggling, and I went to meet one of my bosses, uh, who was the best natural-born salesman I know from the first startup I worked at at Baby Center. I met with Mark, who's actually sitting in the office next to me doing something different. He's a VC at, at um, Cozenoa now. And I said, what should I do, Mark? He's like, stop complaining, get off your rear, and go visit some customers and prospects and close some revenue. And I've sort of distilled this to get on a jet. You cannot sit in front of a monitor and win. Sometimes it works, but for most of us, when you don't know what to do, get on a jet. That, cusp, that prospect that came in that you think there's a 1% chance they're going to close, well, you know what happens if you get on a jet? That it's at least going to go up to 2%. That customer that you're worried about losing, go visit her. Go all the way to Round Rock and visit Dell. Go to Pittsburgh and visit Comcast. Get out of the office and go visit prospects and customers. And if nothing else, it'll at least double the chance the deal closes and half the chance the customer turns. That was, for SaaS, that's the best advice I ever got. And it probably saved the company. And then final question, and you can elaborate a little bit more on this one if you'd like. If you were starting, you know, all over again, what advice would you have given yourself, you know, 15, 20 years ago? Well, hopefully not 20. Let me go. I guess, I guess, I guess. I guess that's a while ago when I first started. You're 
say a little, say a little bit more on that. The number one most important thing, the number one most important thing is to get the founder team right. The first startup I did, which we won't chat a lot about, this company, Nanogram Devices, but we did something that literally every scientist on the planet, every PhD said was impossible. Uh, and it had its challenges, but we took a piece of technology that I tried to sell for $50,000, and 12 and a half months later, I sold it to the same company for $50 million, something that was said impossible. And I won't tell you all the stories, but you know how I did it? I had the best co-founders I've ever had. We're so close. I just had lunch with, with my co- one of my co-founders yesterday, Danya. She and I are bonded for life, right? It, it's forever. Uh, and that's how we did the impossible and, and it grew something from that we couldn't sell for $50,000 and we sold it to the same company for $50 million in 12 months. Yeah. When I think about the success we had at EchoSign and the challenges, I, I really didn't. I, we, I started too quickly. I was too anxious. And I had even better co-founders on paper, but we weren't close, and the team never gelled. And I actually wasn't really successful at EchoSign until I hired my VP of sales and my VP of product, and they became my ex post facto co-founders. Then I had two folks I was genuinely could rely on and was close to. And if I'd taken six, four months to get EchoSign out the door, if I did more patience, which is always hard for us founders, I, I think I would have built the unicorn instead of a centicorn or a something or whatever you call it. So take more time in the, in the beginning and maybe take more time on the big decisions in general, but accelerate the smaller decisions. Cool. But founder decision, don't compromise. I know it's hard, but don't compromise. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jason, this has been incredibly insightful and a, and a really fun and candid conversation, frankly. So you know, appreciate the time and, and the opportunity to talk through your experiences today.